The pastor and author Chuck Swindoll once said, The devil, darkness, and death may swagger and boast. The pangs of life will sting for a while longer, but don't worry. The forces of evil are breathing their last. Not to worry. He is risen. Easter Sunday is the day each year when Christians focus on the resurrection of the Christ more than any other day. Of course, we we talk about it, we celebrate it, and hopefully we tell others about it, which is all good. But the resurrection is more than just an event that we commemorate from the past, right? The the resurrection of Jesus Christ is also a present-day reality that we live in every day, which means it is that gospel, not a virus, not economic hardship or political turmoil or social unrest or any other uncertainty in this life that is our source of confidence for today and our hope for tomorrow. Because at the very center of that gospel is the victory of life over death itself. Jesus is atoning death on a cross that paid for our sins. His resurrection three days later, which validated that work on the cross, proving that he was who he said he was, the Son of God, and that he'd done what he said he would do, conquering death and the grave. So for the Christian, that victory of life over death, that is our reality. So again, the gospel is not just a story that happened a long time ago that we believe in. It is an ongoing story that we're currently living in, as it continues to unfold in our daily lives, informing every aspect of how we live from day to day. Because the lives of everyone who belong to him, including all those who ever will belong to him in the future, right? our lives are a vital part of that story. That is our reality. Far more than any temporary affliction in this life. The reality of the resurrection, the reality that Jesus secured an eternal victory over death, that reality should permeate every single aspect of our lives more than anything else. And so our faith in Jesus, our hope for the future, our purpose for living the way that we do as Christians, all of that is inextricably linked to the resurrection. Because listen, if Jesus didn't pass from death to life, then neither did we. So it's, it's really important that we get this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a story we believe in. It is a reality we're living in. Listen, it has to be. Otherwise, we're not following Jesus Christ. We're simply following a religion, just like all of the other religions where people follow the teachings of religious leaders who died and stayed dead. On the contrary, as Christians, we're not following a religion. We're not supposed to be. We're following a person, and yet if that person is dead just like the rest of the religious leaders throughout history, then all we're actually doing is fooling ourselves and wasting each other's time. That's why we take the time that we do each year to focus on this one part of the gospel story, the resurrection, because look, without it, we're all wasting our time. Without the resurrection, our faith means nothing. Jesus' teachings, well, they simply become the ramblings of a religious lunatic and the church becomes a colossal waste of energy and human resources. By the way, people who say that Jesus was a good teacher but not the Son of God have either never actually read the Bible or they're simply not being intellectually honest because all you have to do is read the red letters in the New Testament, right? Just read the bits where Jesus was actually talking and it doesn't take long at all to figure out that he was either the son of the living God or he was completely crazy, right? 
He said, anyone who does not eat my flesh and drink my blood can have no part in me. Okay, you, you cannot make an intelligent, coherent argument based on biblical scripture that Jesus was something in between those two extremes, either the son of God or a crazy man. And so for those of us who believe that he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he would do, every single aspect of our lives is affected by and informed by and shaped by the resurrection. It has to be. Think about it this way. If your best friend or your spouse died and you went to the funeral in the graveside service and you watched them being lowered into the ground, buried in a casket, and then three days later you decide to go and visit that gravesite to pay your respects to your best friend or to your spouse, except when you get there, you find that the gravesite has been dug up and now it's empty. I mean, can you imagine the utter despair, the hurt, the confusion that you would feel looking at that empty grave? But then as you're walking back home, completely devastated by this unlikely turn of events, your best friend or your spouse walks up beside you full of life and in perfect health. Without question, that one event would define every single day of the rest of your life. You would never not talk about it. You would never pretend it didn't happen. You, you would never try to distance yourself from that reality. It wouldn't even matter to you that it made some people feel uncomfortable every time you talked about it. I'm telling you, you wouldn't care one bit what anyone else ever thought about the fact that you believed it to be true because you would know that it was the truth. And that is all that would matter to you. Right? The reality that your best friend or your spouse was dead and then came back to life three days later, that event would shape every single day of the rest of your life, no matter what anyone else ever thought. Now look, for the Christian, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ should shape every single day of our lives. We should never not talk about it. We should never pretend it didn't happen. We should never distance ourselves from that reality, even if it makes some people uncomfortable every time we talk about it. Why? Because it's not just a story that we believe in. It's the reality that we are living in, the single most important reality of them all. The fact that the same Jesus who was crucified 2,000 years ago is in fact alive and well today. Now look at it. If that is not true, then what we believe as Christians actually means nothing. But if it is true, then what we believe as Christians means everything. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity of false is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Which, of course, begs the question, why then are so many professing Christians moderately committed to Christ? Well, maybe it's because we've believed the story of the resurrection without allowing the reality of it to actually shape and inform our daily lives, to change the way we see God and the way we see ourselves in light of His plan for this world and how we fit into that plan. Because I'm telling you, once, once you come to grips with the fact that the Spirit of God is actually trying to speak to you every day of your life and that he's trying to lead you where you need to go every day of your life and that he's trying to give you what you need to accomplish his will every day of your life. Once you reckon with the reality that he is in fact alive and constantly, unceasingly active in your life on your behalf, you begin to listen for and pay attention to his voice. 
You begin to follow his leading and you begin to receive all that he has for you and then everything about how you live your life changes dramatically. Look, it, it has to. It's exactly what happened in the lives of his first disciples. Once they reckoned with the reality of the resurrection, everything about how they were living changed. In fact, the difference in their lives before and after the resurrection changed the world. But that means living in the reality of it, not just believing in it. The reality that Jesus Christ is alive and well today, which of course also separates him from every other religious leader or teacher the world has ever known. Because unlike every other religious leader who's ever promised anything eternal to their followers, Jesus is the only one who got up out of his grave after three days and made good on every single promise. And of course, I know most of you here today probably believe all of that, which is very important, of course. But the question is, have you allowed the reality of his resurrection to invade your very life, your thoughts, your dreams, your plans, your purpose, your choices, your questions, your fears, your everyday life. Because if not, then maybe it's time you had a new revelation of the risen Christ. Because once you come to grips with the fact that the Spirit of God is in fact alive and active in your life today and you begin to listen to his voice and follow his leading and receive the gifts he's trying to give you, that's when everything in your life changes. Everything. Again, it's what we see with his disciples. Listen, they knew Jesus' story better than anyone. Right? They lived it firsthand. They were with him for years. They certainly believed in him. They believed in Jesus. And yet the moment he was accused and then crucified, they ran away as fast as they could from any association they had with him, even though he had told them numerous times beforehand that he would be killed and then rise from the dead after three days. We see it in Matthew 16, 21, Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 34. And yet even after finding his tomb empty, they were still running and hiding. It wasn't until after he revealed himself to them that the reality of his resurrection set in, which is when every aspect of their lives changed profoundly to the point that their lives after the resurrection were completely unrecognizable in comparison to their lives before the resurrection. So we're going to walk through this story together today from his death to his resurrection. And I want us to pay attention as we go to how the reality of who he was and what he did and the fact that he came back from the dead, how that reality utterly changed everything about the way his disciples lived their lives then and how it should utterly change the way we live our lives today. All right, so let's pick the story up at John chapter 18. If you brought your Bible, we'll put it on the screens as well. This is as Jesus and his disciples make their way by foot from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria and Bethany and Bethpage. They've shared their final meal together. We talked about that last Sunday, and now they're about to cross the Kidron Valley from the great city itself as masses of people are flocking to Jerusalem to share the Passover meal as they did each year. So Jesus and his disciples are now retreating from the city, and they're heading to the Garden of, of, at Gethsemane. We'll begin by reading the first two verses, John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples leave the city. They head out to the garden where they would often meet to rest and pray. And if you pay attention to the details uh, that John's giving here, 
Even this short journey to the garden by Jesus and his disciples is dripping with prophetic significance. And it actually demonstrates quite powerfully the intention of Jesus bent on fulfilling his calling, knowing well and good the cost to him personally, knowing what he was about to do. Jesus, uh, John says that Jesus crossed the brook Kidron. If you read that in the ancient Greek, the brook Kidron is described as a kimaros. In the Arabic, it's called a wadi. It was a storm runlet, a dry gulch that only had water in it during the rainy season. So this is a dry creek bed, in our South Carolina terms, uh, that acted as a storm runoff through the Kidron Valley, which Jesus and his disciples had to cross to get to the garden. But this was the afternoon before the Passover, which was when the priest would sacrifice the lambs on the altar of the temple. And the historical records that we have from Jesus' day tell us that as many as 250,000 lambs were slain by hundreds of priests on this day. So there were these drains at the altar areas that would carry the massive quantities of blood from a quarter of a million lambs along with the water that was used for ritual cleansings down from the city into the otherwise dry brook of Kidron. In fact, the word Kidron itself means black brook or gloomy brook because of its crimson stained banks from the blood that flooded it every year. So, uh, so picture this. As Jesus and his disciples make their way to the garden with his death on a Roman cross being imminent, knowing well the scriptures that were written already uh, that prophetically described in great detail what was going to happen to him, they first have to cross the brook Kidron, which is flowing to its banks with blood and water. Of course, John 19.34, at Jesus' crucifixion, John says, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The prophetic overtones are astounding, which was not lost on Jesus. In fact, if you look through chapter 12 of this gospel, just read the red letters, just, just the parts that Jesus spoke uh, in that one chapter, it becomes undeniably clear that he knew exactly what was coming at this time. The truth is, uh, it's hard to imagine what Jesus must have been thinking and feeling as he crossed over that brook as the blood and water from those sacrificial lambs flowed through the valley, knowing good and well where God's plan for him was about to lead, and yet Jesus never rejected the Father's plan for his life. The, the 19th century English preacher Octavius Winslow said it this way, So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself. He created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed would. Jesus embraced the reality of his death, and so must we. Yet we much prefer uh, to think about and talk about the other parts of the gospel, don't we? The, one, the ones that don't require as much from us, right? The love of Christ is easy to talk about. The fact that he ate with sinners is easy to talk about. The fact that he fed hungry people, that's easy to talk about. His willingness and desire to accept the outcasts of society, that's easy to talk about. We love to talk about all of those aspects of the gospel, as we should, often. And of course, those parts of the gospel are also popular themes in our culture, which is why they're easy for us to talk about. But when you start talking about the fact that Jesus was mercilessly and brutally tortured and mocked and beaten and crucified because of you and me. To make atonement for our own sin. 
Now you're making people uncomfortable. And we don't like to make people uncomfortable. So we shy away from talking about the difficult parts of the gospel. Listen, we have to embrace the reality of the crucifixion if we're going to live in the reality of the resurrection. Because first of all, there is no resurrection without a crucifixion. And secondly, there is no need for either if we are not desperately in need of a savior of our own sin. Right? This is why those early disciples always told the whole story, and so must we. In Matthew's account of Jesus' trial and execution, he says in chapter 27, verse 26, that Jesus was scourged just before being crucified. That's Roman flogging or scourging. It was horrifically cruel, a punishment where those condemned were tied to a post and beaten with a leather whip that was interwoven with pieces of bone and metal, which would tear through the skin and tissue, often exposing the bones and even intestines. In fact, in many cases, the flogging itself was fatal. And in, in this case, the Romans made certain to scourge Jesus nearly to death so that he would not remain alive on the cross after sundown because Jewish custom dictated that crucified bodies had to be taken down before evening, especially before Sabbath, which began at sundown on Friday. Yet as horrible as it is to contemplate all that he went through for us, Every single step of that process was a fulfillment of what was prophesied about him in various scriptures throughout the Old and New Testaments leading up to these events. In other words, this is what he came to do for you and for me. In fact, if you keep reading Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31, he describes how the Roman soldiers stripped Jesus down and put a scarlet robe on his body and pushed a crown of thorns into his scalp. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Roman soldiers in Jerusalem at this point in history were famous for playing cruel games with condemned prisoners. They would often, in fact, dress them in uh, wild costumes. They would even put them on a huge game board and they would place the prisoners there and use them as game pieces as they'd play these sadistic games to degrade and punish those who were condemned to die in the moments leading up to their death. And all the while, Jesus, who at any moment could have commanded legions of angels to come and snuff the life out of every one of those who imposed him. Instead, he freely allows them to torture him, ruthlessly. Because he knew that he could not avoid that part of what he'd come to do for us. And neither can we. We cannot glaze over the hard truth about his death, a death that only happened because of our sin. We cannot ignore the part of his plan for our own lives that requires us to die to ourselves. In fact, that is what the Bible means when it talks about suffering for Christ. Dying to ourselves, I'm convinced, is a much harder thing to do than being persecuted by someone else. This is a part of the gospel that we must embrace. Because look, if people do not understand the wages of their sin, they will never understand their need for a savior. You cannot lead people into a true understanding of the gospel by only talking about the love of Jesus for this world. That's a great place to start. But at some point, we must confront the reality of his horrific death because of your sin and my sin. And then, 
our own subsequent need to die to ourselves, to repent of that sin, and to live for Him instead of living for ourselves. That may not be a popular message. In fact, it never has been. But it is a reality that we must embrace. Let's keep reading. John 18, verses 3 through 9. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So Judas gathers a band of soldiers. These were Roman soldiers and some temple police from the, uh, the chief priests and Pharisees as well. And in the original Greek uh, language, the band of soldiers is described as a spira. That was a Roman cohort or a thousand soldiers. In practice in the first century, it was usually about six to seven hundred soldiers. But when you add in the temple police, it is estimated that there were about a thousand men with lanterns and torches and weapons sent out to capture one man. Now, hearing this story as a kid growing up, I always pictured it in the, in the, you know, the, the Bibles with the pictures in them that you had as a kid. I always just pictured 15 or 20 soldiers with Judas coming to arrest Jesus. Can you imagine the sight and sound of this mass of soldiers with torches and lanterns, the metal of their swords and armor clanging together as they approached that garden that evening, a thousand strong it must have been a terrifying sight. And part of the reason they sent so many, by the way, after Jesus is because they weren't just concerned about Jesus and his immediate disciples. At this point, he'd become very popular with the masses of people. So there was a fear of an uprising upon his arrest. So sending out a thousand soldiers would, of course, much better prepare the authorities for any uh, potential mob violence. And it would send a loud message to everyone who was thinking about that, which was always a concern for the Romans during the Passover. When, according to uh, the first century scholar Flavius Josephus, he says there were over two million seven hundred thousand people crowded into the city on this day. So a thousand battle hardened soldiers come seeking to arrest Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? He steps forward toward them, and he asks them, Whom do you seek? And when they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth, he responds with the very same words that were given to Moses by God from the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. When Moses asked the Lord who he should tell the Israelites it was who had sent him. In the ancient Greek, it's the words ego emi, which literally means I am or I am who I am. And the moment Jesus speaks those words, when they ask, right, he says, who is it you've come for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am who I am. The moment he reveals his true identity, what happens? A thousand battle-hardened soldiers with their lanterns and swords and torches and armor and weapons fall to the ground. Think about that. They all fall over onto the ground when he speaks his name. 
It's no wonder that in just a few moments, Peter has the courage to lunge forward into the horde of soldiers and cut the ear off of one of them. Again, growing up, I used to wonder, how did Peter, why was he so courageous in the face of all these soldiers when just moments later, in the face of a servant girl, he denies even knowing Jesus three times out of fear for his life? It never made any sense to me. But it makes perfect sense now when you understand what was happening here. You see, all throughout Scripture, right, the book of Ezekiel, Daniel, Acts, Revelation, when God revealed himself to people, they fell over. They passed out. They blacked out. In Revelation 1.17, describing the divine revelation of Christ to him on the island of Patmos, John, the apostle John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He passed out. When Jesus reveals himself to these soldiers, they collapse to the ground. And if Jesus, simply speaking his own name, can knock a thousand hardened soldiers onto their backs, Peter must have felt invincible at that moment. What a moment it was. You see, Jesus wasn't afraid of the thousand soldiers. He wasn't afraid of their swords, of their torches, of their armor. He wasn't afraid of anything that men could ever do to him because he knew who he was. Jesus embraced the reality of his identity. And so must we. Yet again, it's easy for us to tell other people about all of his likable qualities, about his popular character traits, even about his stand against the broken religious system of the day. We love it. But listen, Jesus wasn't just a likable rebel who bucked the system. No, he also said of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, John 10, 9. The apostle Peter said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12, the apostle Paul said, There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Okay, the New Testament writers cite Messianic prophecies from the Old Testament more than 130 times. The Old Testament contains over 400 prophetic passages that describe in detail who the Messiah is and what he will do for us. Now, honestly, what do you think the chances are, the, the sheer odds of all of those prophecies being fulfilled in one person? The truth is the chances are so staggeringly remote that the possibility of it being mere coincidence is a complete joke. Jesus alone is the Messiah. He's the one and only Son of God, the only way to the Father. He's the only truth, the only light, the only salvation. He's the only one able to conquer death and the grave, the only one who can give us new life. He's the only one who could atone for our sins, and he's the only one worthy of our devotion and worship. Is it good and is it right to tell people about the, the true qualities of Jesus? Well, of course it is. But at the same time, we cannot ignore the true identity of Jesus because we're worried about sounding intolerant of other people's beliefs or religions. I told you this story before when I made a new friend. He was a Muslim man 
who had asked me to meet with him once a week to help him with some issues he was dealing with in his professional and personal life. He's a professional counselor. And I'd only known him for a few months and had just begun meeting with him regularly, and yet God gave me a deep love and a concern for this man almost immediately after getting to know him. And the last time we met, he asked me a question about my faith, to which I replied, listen, if Jesus is who he says he is, then what I believe means everything. But if Jesus is not who he says he is, well, then what I believe means nothing. And so he asked me to explain that further. And the door was open, and so I laid bare the gospel. My own desperate need for Christ in my life, or I wouldn't make it through my own struggles or survive the effects of my own sin because Jesus is the only way to salvation from the wrath of God that every single one of us deserves. Being the kind and gracious man that he was, he thanked me at the end of our meeting and told me he was looking forward to our next one. A week later, he died. Okay, we dare not claim to love Jesus if we're not willing to tell people who he really is. Because any moment could be their last on this earth. Telling people the truth about who Jesus is, his true identity. The reality of the one who raised from the dead, who is the only way to the Father. That's a reality we must embrace. Let's keep reading. We're going to skip down to chapter 19, halfway through verse 16. And read through verse 19. This is after the torture and trial of Jesus as the soldiers now take him out to be crucified. John says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, on, uh, one on either side and Jesus between them. The Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. Now skip down to verse 28 uh, through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, to a reference to Psalm 22. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So even while he's dying an excruciating death, Jesus is still doing and saying everything required to fulfill the prophetic scriptures about himself. In particular, he references Psalm 22:15 when in his final dying moments, he expresses his thirst and other passages as well as we'll see. Because again, Jesus understood that everything that was written about the coming of the Messiah was written about him, which is why he not only embraced the reality of his death and the reality of his true identity, but Jesus embraced the reality of his resurrection. And so must we. You understand, even while dying on a cross, not for one second did Jesus ever doubt his own resurrection. Matthew uh, describes the scene in chapter 27, just before Jesus gasps his, uh, his last breath, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. It's Hebrew. For my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in Matthew 27, 46. And I'm just going to be honest with you. After everything that Jesus did, understanding who he was and the fact that he was not only going to die for mankind, but understanding exactly why. I talk about this each year because of its profound significance. 
I always thought it a bit anticlimactic that the Son of God, who with all of his wisdom and understanding, not just in general, but in that very situation, knowing exactly why he was there and what he was accomplishing by being there and knowing that he was going to rise from the dead. Jesus knew that. It always felt like a bit of a letdown to me that he would spend his final breath questioning the Father. You know, when you think about people who are about to be executed, they're given a chance to offer their final words, at least from those who are in their right minds. You expect their deepest, innermost thoughts. You, you expect them to muster up the most profound and meaningful statement they can give in that moment. And it's quite interesting, in fact, to read some of those statements that have been made by people who are about to be executed over the years. Because you know, most of them have had a long time to think about what was about to happen to them. And indeed, some of those final words are very uh, compelling. They're very deep, very thought-provoking. Some of them actually are quite profound. And so uh, I think I just always expected more of that from Jesus, who had plenty of time to think about what he would say in that moment. He knew why he was there. He knew that he would rise from the dead, and yet what I would read in Matthew always seemed more of a really sad expression of confused bewilderment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so for most of my life in church, I heard it explained that because Jesus was shouldering the sin of the world, that in some way in that moment he had to be cut off from fellowship with the Father, and he, he couldn't fathom that. So in bewilderment, he questions the Father in that final moment of his life on earth. And again, just to be honest, that always left me with a bit of a sense of defeat. Even though I knew that Jesus rose from the dead later and conquered sin and death, Right, that, that was the moment of triumph over the grave, and yet at Jesus' last gasp, it always felt like a bit of a defeat to me as he questions the Father in, in the most victorious moment that's ever been in all of humankind. And that's what I believe for most of my life. Listen, the truth is, there's so much more to what was actually happening in that moment than Jesus simply being bewildered by the Father turning away from sin. In fact, what was really happening was not at all what I thought or what I was taught, which at best it was an incomplete picture and quite possibly a total misunderstanding of that passage. You see, in the first century, the scripture that people had and knew was, of course, predominantly Old Testament scripture. And some of the most commonly quoted and well-known passages of scripture at the time were the Psalms, which, of course, are songs, right? The word psalm means hymn. These were songs that were sung and taught and quoted by God's people all the time. And if you think about a really famous song from our lifetime today, right, a song that everyone would know really well, you can simply hear the first line of that song and nothing else, and immediately you know what that song is and, and what it's about, the message of that song, how it makes you feel all just by hearing the first line of the song. Because you know it. It's, if you're old like me, you, maybe you remember the show Name That Tune, right? Where they would play the first line of a song and the person listening would have to guess the name of the song. And of course, the more well-known the song, the, easy, the easier it was to name the song. That's how songs and music work in general. The more you hear it, the more it stays with you to the point that just hearing the first line of a song can instantly recall the entire piece. Right? So, you don't believe me? If I sing, Oh, say, can you see? It only takes that one line, and you know what that song is. 
You know what that song is about. You can probably even begin to feel the emotions that it stirs up inside of you and the grateful sense of wonder and awe for the victories won and the privilege of living in such an amazing country and all of that just from hearing the first line of a song. And the reason that matters is because Psalm 22 is one of those songs. It's one of the songs that was taught in Jesus' day, it's a well-known song that starts out as a great lament about suffering, but it happens to end in great victory over one's enemies. In fact, Psalm 22 was known as a song about victory, even in the worst of circumstances when it seems the whole world has turned against you. Psalm 22 was the ultimate cry of victory over the enemy. And again, this this song of victory was taught over and over and over again. It was well known at the time that Jesus was hanging there on that cross. In fact, we've already seen John point out that Jesus fulfilled Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, in his great thirst just before dying. And if you read the beginning of Psalm 22, the very first line of that song says, What? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you getting the picture? As Jesus is dying on the cross, and he knows it's about time. He wasn't using his final breath to express some kind of doubt or defeat or bewilderment with the Father. Not at all. You see, as he felt his life slipping away with one final breath in his lungs, he cries out the first line of one of the greatest songs about victory over the enemy that had ever been written. Jesus is quoting a very familiar line to a very familiar song. He's making a statement to the world in that moment, both to theirs, uh, those who were there that day, witnessing his death, and to everyone after who would ever read Matthew's account of Jesus' crucifixion. He was saying in that moment, in the worst of circumstances that anyone could ever fathom having to face, Jesus was claiming the final victory for all who would ever call upon his name forever. And then seconds later, the victory was won. Can you feel it? The gravity, the difference of that passage in Matthew now from what seemed to be a, stat, a sad statement of, of defeat and bewilderment to what is actually the greatest victory cry in the history of humankind. Because Jesus knew what he'd come to do. He knew who he was. And he knew where he was going to end up. And so even in his dying, he was living in the reality of his own resurrection. And so there on the cross, with one final breath, he put an exclamation point on his coming resurrection by claiming victory over the grave. And then as we move to chapter 20, and I'm closing with this, we see his resurrection become a reality to those who loved him the most. Let's read the first 16 verses together. Chapter 20, 1 through 16. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. Uh, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani. Jesus was alive. But they saw him die. They saw him buried. They saw his tomb, and yet here he is, as alive as ever. And as the reality of that resurrection made its impact, beginning with Mary and then on to the other disciples, listen, it defined every single day of the rest of their lives. And from that moment on, everything changed. They could no longer hide the reality of who he was and what he'd done for them. They could no longer hold back from telling his story to anyone and everyone who would listen, even when that meant making people feel uncomfortable, even when that meant persecution, even when it meant suffering and death, because the reality of his resurrection fundamentally changed the reality of their own lives to the point that every one of them devoted every day of the rest of their lives to boldly proclaiming what they knew to be true because they'd witnessed it firsthand. Now listen, maybe you could see one or two of them losing their minds if Jesus had not actually risen from the grave, right? If this was all just a made-up story. You could, you could see maybe one or two, maybe three, right? Deciding to start a new religion based on this lie. But all of them, come on. Chuck Colson, he's now passed away. He served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 73. He was known as President Nixon's hatchet man. And as many of you know, he gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal. And ultimately, he pled guilty to obstruction of justice for his part in that political scandal. And he served seven months in federal prison. Later, he became an outspoken Christian in what was a radical life change, and he led him to found a ministry called Prison Fellowship, and then Prison Fellowship International, where he taught and trained people how to focus on a Christian worldview in every aspect of their lives. He also went on to author uh, more than 30 amazing books. The point is, Colson was a man who knew what it meant to be radically transformed by the truth of the gospel, by the reality of the resurrection. And this is what he had to say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. 
Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a story we believe in. It is a reality we're living in. And it should therefore define and dramatically transform every aspect of who we are and how we live our lives today, just like it did for those 12 men in the Bible. But imagine if after seeing Jesus alive, if after touching him and talking with him and walking with him and eating with him, imagine if after all that, when those disciples were around other people, they pretended that none of it was true because they didn't want to make other people feel uncomfortable or they didn't want the reality of it to disrupt their own lives so they lived like it never happened. No, that would be unthinkable. That would almost be like us seeing our best friend or our spouse alive and well after they'd been dead for three days and then speaking with them and touching them and eating with them and living with them. But when other people were around pretending that none of it really happened, that would be unthinkable because the fact that this person was dead and is now alive would become our new reality, one that would shape every single day of the rest of our lives. That's exactly what happened with his disciples then and it's exactly how it should be with his disciples now. So just ask yourself, ask yourself, is the resurrection just a story that I believe in? Or is it the reality that I'm actually living in day by day? Am I listening to his voice in my life every day? Am I literally following him, going where he leads me every day? Am I receiving what he's offering me every day? Or am I just living day by day under my own steam and my own ability, believing in a story about something that happened in the past? Because look, if, if his resurrection the fact that Jesus is alive and active in your life, always speaking, always leading, always giving, if that reality is not continually shaping your life every day, well then maybe it's time you had a new revelation of the risen Christ. Because it's not just a story that you believe in. It is a reality that he is inviting you to live in. Let's pray.